Good afternoon. Thank you for coming today. My name is Alex Narasta, and I'm the Immigration Policy Analyst here at the Cato Institute. This is an exciting time to talk about the economics and the impact of immigration. Recently, the Senate passed an immigration reform bill with a vote of 68 to 32, and the House of Representatives is currently debating uh, similar proposals in their chamber right now. So I think this is an important time where we can bring in some of the experts, some of the main academics who have been working on this topic for the last couple of years, and hear what they have to say about immigration in general, and to share some of the insights of their research with all of us today. And I want to say it's especially a pleasure for me to be up here uh, to introduce these three economists who I have cited extensively in my own work on this issue. Uh, since you didn't come here to hear me talk about it, I'm going to begin right away with an introduction. Um, our first presenter is going to be uh, Professor Madeline Zavodny, who is a professor of economics and currently the chair of the economics department at Agnes Scott College in Atlanta, Georgia. She, she is also an adjunct fellow with the American Enterprise Institute. Her research interests include the economics of the family, economic demography, and immigration. Professor Zavodny has published in dozens of peer-reviewed academic journals, as well as contributing or co-authoring numerous books. My, my personal favorite being uh, Beside the Golden Door. Uh, her, she earned her PhD in economics from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology. Our second presenter is uh, Ethan Lewis, who is an associate professor of economics at Dartmouth College, as well as a research fellow at the National Bureau of Economic Research and the Center for Research and Analysis of Migration. Previously, he worked at the Federal Reserve Banks of Philadelphia and San Francisco. His research, research interests include the interplay of different economic factors of production, the impact of technology and education on labor markets, and immigration. Professor Lewis has written almost a dozen pieces that have appeared in peer-reviewed academic journals, as well as numerous book chapters and other publications, most notably, in my opinion so far, analyzing how immigrant and American workers work together in the American labor market. He earned his PhD in economics from the University of California at Berkeley. Our final presenter will be Michael Clemens, who is the Senior Fellow and Research Manager leading the Migration and Development Initiative at the Center for Global Development. He has served as an affiliated associate professor of public policy at Georgetown and a visiting scholar at NYU, as well as a consultant for numerous uh, aid organizations as well as private firms. His research interests include the effects of foreign aid and economic development and uh, trying to judge techniques to evaluate the effectiveness of various aid projects. He's trying to identify the determinants of capital flows, historical analyses of the determinants of school choice expansion or school expansion, as well as the effects of tariff policy in the 19th century. And uh, in recent years uh, with immigration, with, on immigration, with particular focus on global implications of loosening immigration restrictions. Michael Clemens' papers have been published in numerous outlets, including a large number of peer-reviewed academic journals at the Center for Global Development and elsewhere. His 2011 paper in the Journal of Economic Perspectives, entitled Economics and Immigration, Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk, sort of catapulted him overnight into the who's who of economics uh, and who is studying immigration. Uh, so without further ado, I want to begin with our first pre uh, presenter, Professor Zavodny. Okay. 
many thanks to Cato and especially to Alex Narasta for organizing this event. It couldn't be more timely. So what I'm going to talk about today is the economic case for highly skilled immigrants. And I think that this is incredibly you know, easy to make. And if you don't believe me, well, hopefully you will in 20 minutes uh, understand the many economic contributions that highly skilled immigrants make to the US economy. Let me first start with a caveat. When I say highly skilled here, I do mean highly educated. This is in no way to denigrate or not give credit to the many talents that less educated, those who have not completed um, college you know, workers have. Certainly, it's just a shorthand that you often hear in this literature when talking about education is to call it skill. But we, it's important to recognize that workers throughout the educational distribution do have skills. But I'm going to be talking today about the highly educated, the highly skilled. So what specifically am I going to talk about? Just to give you a very quick roadmap of where we're going. I'm going to give you a very quick overview of immigrant skill levels and how they compare to those of US natives. Then I'm going to talk about highly skilled immigrants in the labor market, what their role is, and then what economic research tells us about their contributions to the US economy. And then I want to talk briefly about policy, since that's certainly you know, what's very much on the agenda these days in Congress. All right, so what this figure shows you is the educational distribution of the foreign-born workforce. So if you took all immigrants defined as anyone who's not a US citizen at birth and looked at the distribution of them across education categories for the most recent data available, the 2011 American Community Survey, this is what it would look like. What do you see? It looks like immigrants are relatively low education, that the preponderance, you know, the majority, the most common group here is not having a high school diploma or GED than a high school degree, and it's just you know, a very beautiful step function. When you look at US natives, in contrast, they look like this. Now, what's really interesting to take away from this is that US natives are relatively unlikely to be in the no high school degree category, the one over on the far left. Why? Well, because we have compulsory education laws in the US that require almost everyone to go to school in the United States until age 16 or 18. So most people end up getting their high school diploma. If not, they recognize that there's a high return to having that diploma to getting a GED, and so they go on and get it. So you see that most US natives are in the high school diploma or GED, some college or bachelor's degree category. Relatively small percentages are in the master's of professional degree. That would be like a JD, MBA, uh, doctor, or in the PhD category. What you should walk away from with the, this from, from this with, though, is the comparison of immigrants to natives. So what this figure shows you is the relative share of immigrants to the share of natives. So it's taking the first figure and dividing by the second figure. So it's comparing the two. What do you see here? Immigrants are disproportionately at the extremes. They're particularly likely to be at the no high school degree, right? That's not a surprise when you think about the fact that almost a third of immigrants in the United States are from Mexico, lots more are from Latin America, other relatively poor countries where educational attainment isn't as high as it is in the United States. But look what happens when you look at the other side of the educational distribution, the percent of PhDs, that immigrants are twice as likely as US natives to have a PhD, and they're just as likely as US natives to have a master's or professional degree. So when you look at immigrants, they're at the two ends of the labor market. They're at the low skill end, and they're at the high skill or high education end. 
right? And this is where the economic contributions really come in, is these comparative advantages that immigrants have, and as Ethan will talk about later, that they're different from US natives, right? So let's think about highly skilled immigrants in the labor market. One of the major concerns that US natives have is that when immigrants come here, they compete with natives for jobs. And as a result, natives either are less likely to have a job, or when they do have a job, that they earn lower wages. This seems like common sense. And you hear lots of anecdotes. Oh, my brother, my cousin, my friend lost his job, took a lower wage because of competition from immigrants. But when you go through and systematically look at the data, as economist after economist has done, there's surprisingly little evidence of negative effects on competing or similar US workers. That when you look at highly skilled immigrants, the only research that finds a significant negative effect on wages among highly skilled workers, those who have beyond a college degree, is by George Borjas, published in the Quarterly Journal of Economics. But when you look at the preponderance of the evidence, again, economist after economist, article after article, finds lots of evidence of zeros. And there's even some evidence of positive effects that Pia Arrhenius and I find in a paper of ours published uh, in Labor Economics, that it looks like highly skilled immigrants actually are complementary to highly skilled natives and increase their wages. When you look at low-skilled immigrants, those who are at the bottom of the education distribution, there's perhaps more evidence of negative effects. But again, things are still very mixed here, that it would be very difficult to walk away from the economics literature with a conclusion that immigrants hurt competing natives in the labor market. I want to spend a little bit of time talking about H-1B visas because that's where so many highly skilled immigrants are. So H-1B visas are these temporary visas, first for three years, renewable for another three, for specialized workers. Lots of these are computer programmers, system analysts, and so on. And what the research in this area shows very clearly is that there is no compelling evidence by economic research that H-1B holders harm similar natives. Research by Lofstrom and Hayes and by Rothwell and Ruiz shows that H-1B workers actually earn more than similar natives, that they're not undercutting US natives in the labor market. My research for the Federal Reserve Bank of Atlanta shows that the number of H-1B workers has no negative effect on unemployment or on wages in the IT sector, where most H-1B workers work. Uh, there's recent research done by Giovanni Perry, published in the Review of Economics and Statistics in 2012, that shows uh, that H-1B workers boost wages among college graduate US natives. Right? Uh, then if my research for the American Enterprise Institute and the Partnership for a New American Economy shows that the number of H-1B workers is positively related to total employment. When you look at everyone, not just competing workers, you actually see positive job effects from having more H-1B workers. When you sit down and talk to people in the high-tech industry and their concerns about H-1B workers, a lot of it looks more like an age story than an immigrant story. The people who are having difficulty getting jobs are older workers. And some of them are foreign-born as well as native-born. So the idea that we're going to you know, attribute what's going on in that industry to H competition from H-1B workers, you know, it just doesn't hold up in the data. 
Okay. So why don't we see more negative effects, right? Why doesn't the demand curve slope down when the labor supply curve slopes up? Well, there's a lot of possibilities here. One is that US natives might move into different jobs as a result of immigration. And this is what Giovanni Perry and Chad Sparber show in their paper, that US natives move into their comparative advantage as a result of immigration by both low-skilled and high-skilled immigrants. It's also possible that US natives move across areas. And this is what research by Abigail Wozniak shows that U.S. natives move to different places when immigrants are moving in to their uh, local area. There's also some recent research by Jennifer Hunt that suggests that the competition from highly skilled immigrants really only comes when they speak English very well. And so that the fact that a lot of highly skilled immigrants, particularly in high-tech fields, aren't fluent in English really reduces how substitutable they are for U.S.-born workers. But another possibility, and the most important important one here is that highly skilled workers don't harm competing or other US natives job opportunities because highly skilled immigrants create jobs via their innovative activities and via their entrepreneurial activities. So what's the research on that? If we turn to job creation, my report for a partnership for a new American economy and the American Enterprise Institute shows that if you increase the number of foreign-born advanced degree holders in the United States, for every 100 more of them, total US employment increases by 44. If those foreign-born advanced degree holders happen to work in STEM and their degree appears to be from a US university, for 100 more of them, you get 262 more jobs among US natives. That there's job creation going on, not just for the immigrants themselves, but for US natives as a result of having more highly skilled immigrants, right? Business creation. What research by Vivek Wadwa and others show here is that about one quarter of high-tech startups and about half of high-tech startups in Silicon Valley have at least one key immigrant founder. That immigrants are playing a very important role in the high-tech industry. And what Jennifer uh, Hunt and Marjolaine Gauthier-Lociel show is uh, that immigrants are more likely to have started a firm with at least 10 employees than US natives are when we look at college graduates. So they're creating jobs, they're creating businesses, and they're innovating as well. Jennifer Hunt and Marjolaine Gauthier-Lazelle's uh, research shows that immigrants are twice as likely to patent, immigrants who have a college degree are twice as likely to patent as college graduate US natives are. Why? Because they predominantly have degrees in STEM and work in STEM. They are in innovative fields. Right? And then research by Bill Kerr and William Lincoln shows that not only are immigrants more likely to patent and to innovate than US natives, but that there's no crowd out or negative effects going on among US natives. If anything, it looks like there's positive spillovers among US natives. Okay? Research by Giovanni Perry shows that when you have more H-1B workers, you end up with higher productivity growth as well, right? That if you look at foreign-born STEM workers, they can account for one quarter of the increase in productivity growth that happened during the 1990s boom and a similar share of productivity growth during the early 2000s. Right? And finally, highly skilled immigrants, they're net fiscal contributors, much like highly educated natives are, that they're paying more in taxes than they're receiving in government benefits. And certainly in this era where we're very worried about the solvency of Social Security and Medicare and about outsized government deficits, particularly at the federal level, having net fiscal contributors, you know, it's important to have them, right? So when we look, think about policy implications from this, 
I think the policy implications are very, very clear, that we would want more highly skilled immigrants, creating jobs, creating businesses, patenting, innovating. One thing that's really important to recognize is that the foreign students, particularly at the graduate level, but increasingly at the undergraduate level, and the H-1B program are critical entry points for this population, that most of them are not coming over initially as green cards. They're certainly not coming as unauthorized immigrants, and that's something that we can talk about later. Uh, but that these programs, ensuring that there are ways for foreign students to enter and people to get H-1B visas, and then to stay in the United States is very, very important if we want to get the job and business creation benefits of highly skilled immigrants. When you think about what are some of the problems with current policy that the Senate legislation addressed, that there are very long waits for green cards, that there are hundreds of thousands of highly skilled immigrants waiting, mostly in the United States, on H-1B visas to get a green card, right? And they are waiting potentially for many, many years, particularly if they're from China, India, the Philippines, or Mexico, because there's country caps that no one country can receive more than 7% of numerically limited green cards right now. The Senate bill would change this, and so that's a very, very good thing to get rid of these country caps and end the queues that stretch for years and years and years. What I tell my students at Agnes Scott College is, if you want to remain in the United States, and these are bright, talented women, how should they remain? They should marry a U.S. native. And I think that's really sad that I have to tell them that. And it's also, you know, not really consistent with the type of visa that they're on, right? But our immigration policy is very, very messed up when your best way to stay in the United States is assortative mating, right, to, to marry a U.S. native. And finally, I'd just like to say, you know, low-skilled or less educated immigrants play an important role in our economy as well. And we certainly shouldn't forget about their economic contributions. So please don't take any of this as, you know, not saying that low-skilled immigrants matter as well. Thank you. Hi, I'm Ethan Liss. Thank you. Uh, thank you for having me here, Alex. It's great to talk here. And uh, what I want to talk about today is the benefits and costs of immigration. As, as uh, Madeline said, I'm going to focus on low-skill immigration. So the benefits and costs of immigration is a big topic. I'm not going to discuss all of the benefits and costs of immigration. Um, I'm going to focus on two pieces of my own research and what they contribute to our understanding of this. But I do want to start with a kind of a broad overview, and I'm going to uh, copy some of Madeline's facts in this, um, um, in order to set the stage for the uh, understanding my contribution to this topic. All right. So the first thing we know, uh, we've known for a while, is that the gains to immigrants themselves from migrating are huge. Uh, so if you just think about the average wage of a Mexican living in Mexico, for example, compared to the average wage they went, earn in the US, there's an enormous gap that incentivizes them to come here. There's just huge gains to migration. And I think that's one of the things that Michael's going to talk about. People have pointed out there, the, the world would be better off if there were fewer restrictions. A lot of people would be better off. There are fewer restrictions on where you could live in the world. Um, in addition, as it turns out, there are gains to the receiving countries, um, which are also positive. So today I'm going to use the terms native-born, and since we're talking about the US, US-born and natives interchangeably. So there's gains for us as well. And uh, they, they are also positive, but smaller than the gains to immigrants themselves. Um, and today, when I talk about the benefits of immigration, 
I'm really talking about this second thing, the gains to us. And we shouldn't forget the first, and I may come back to that at the end, but today I'm just talking about the benefits to the native born. So where do these benefits come from? Well, there's a very standard theoretical model um, in the economics literature, which essentially says we get gains from immigration by pushing up the wages of native born workers. Um, and with economists, there's always a trade-off. There's never a free lunch. Um, so the cost is that there's some winners and some losers. Uh, immigration pushes down the wages of some workers and pushes up the wages of other workers, but on average, we benefit. So how does this work? So the optimal immigration system, and Madeline kind of alluded to this, is like, it's one in which what we do is we admit immigrants uh, who have skills that would otherwise be scarce in, in the existing population, skills that would hard to, be hard to come by in the existing population. And if we do that, what happens is it does push down the wages of those who have this skill, this scarce skill. But for the rest of us, by having access to this pool of workers who have scarce skills, that makes us more productive. Um, and as a result, our wages go up, and we're better off. Um, so in other words, the average native-born worker benefits, but at the expense of lower wages for some types of workers. Um, a corollary of this is that if we just picked immigrants that looked like us, if they had the same mix of skills as us, there would be no benefit in this model. We would just be expanding the population. Okay. Um, to make this a little more concrete, uh, let's look at the skill mix of immigrants and natives as it actually occurs. Um, so the, this is the, a division in, into very broad skill categories. Uh, immigrants who are over the past decade, which are shown in the black bars, and natives who are shown in the gray bars um, among college and non-college status. So this is a very, obviously a very broad distinction. Uh, there's skill differences within these broad categories, but a lot of economics research has shown that this is like the most basic key skill measure that divides workers in the labor markets. College and non-college workers do very different things and the labor market treats them as very different types of workers. So what this shows is a majority of US workers, uh, almost 60% actually, are college educated. The US is a very high skilled country. So in this standard model, what the standard model says is we benefit from importing the scarce skill, which for us in relative terms is the non-college workers, the less educated workers. Um, and indeed, our immigration policy, if you want to call it that, pushes in that direction. Most immigrants, as Madeline already pointed out, are non-college educated. Now, however, you know, it doesn't push very strongly in that direction, as it turns out. Um, uh, you know, if these bars were the same height, I remind you, that there would, in this theory, we would get no benefit from immigration. And it's, we're not that far from being there. In addition, in the, inside this black bar, are all of the, are most of the illegal immigrants uh, who are not a part of official immigration policy. So if you take them out, our immigration policy is even less tilted towards producing benefits uh, for the US. Okay, so how does it work? Just to remind you, in theory, that bringing in the, nevertheless, kind of bringing in these non-college workers, in theory, is gonna push down the wages of non-college workers, but push up the wages of everybody else, and since most of us are college educated in the US, the average native benefits. So is that what actually happens in practice? Do you see empirical support for this model? That's a theory. Is that what actually happens? 
Well, to, to find that out, first you need to know two other things about, that are not shown in this figure. First, it also matters not just the skill mix of immigrants, but how many come. So even if all immigrants were unskilled, if there weren't very many of them, they wouldn't have much impact on the wage structure, so there wouldn't be any benefit or cost, really. Um, second, the, the immigrants are not um, geographically uniformly spread. So immig immigrants are a lot more concentrated in some labor markets than others. And indeed, that's what we can use and uh, economists often use to, to assess these models empirically. So that's where, let, let, let's try that. So the first thing we should see, if, if, this is, if the way I'm describing it is correct, places that got more immigration should see slower increases in college share. Essentially, what I'm saying is that immigration pushes down the skill mix and makes it less college educated. So do we see that basic thing first? And indeed we do. So what I'm showing here is a scatter plot. So each little circle in this scatter plot is a metropolitan area, is a labor market, if you will. And on the x-axis is the change in the share of foreign-born over the past 10 years, uh, the kind of the amount of immigration relative to the existing po population. And the y-axis is the change in the share of college-educated. So indeed, as I said, places that got more immigrants saw faster declines in, uh, uh, in college share or slower increases in college share. And places that got less immigrants saw uh, uh, faster increases in college share because immigration is pushing down the, the average college education. Immigrants are less educated. OK. Um, lest you think that's a bad thing, I may remind you that in the standard model, this produces benefits. And indeed, you see that. So places that saw more foreign-born workers and slower increases in college share also saw faster wage growth for native-born workers. So that's on the y-axis here. So, Native-born workers who happened to live in cities that got bigger inflows of uh, immigrants in the, 19, uh, in the 2000s, I'm sorry, saw faster wage growth, and you tend to see this. So that is the benefit of immigration in this standard model. Okay, what about the cost? So I said there was no free lunch. So the, the, the people that are uh, supposed to be hurt by this are the non-college workers, right? They're, we're pushing down their wages as we add more non-college workers. Well, when you break this up into the growth in the wages of non-college and college separately, you don't actually see that negative effect. So if you look at this, the, the, the left-hand bar here is the, the wage growth for non-college workers. And the right-hand uh, graph is for college workers, which are upward sloping, as the model predicts. But you're not really seeing that cost side of the equation. The kind of non-college wages aren't really going down. Um, in the 2000s. Now, I don't want to overstate this. You can work really hard and um, try to rule out that maybe immigrants are picking places that had faster wage growth using historical patterns of immigration. And economists have gone to a lot of trouble to try to rule those kind of things out. Um, and sometimes, if you look in other decades, you can find negative effects. But they tend to be very muted, is, what I'll, is the way I'll summarize it. They, they tend to be much smaller than the theory would predict at, at most. Okay, so what's going on? So my view of this is that that standard, that very simple model is too simple. That it's kind of leaving out ways in which the labor market adjusts and adapts to immigration. So one of those ways is that firms can respond to immigration by changing the way they produce. They change their production technology. Another thing it leaves out is that immigrants and natives may not compete so head-to-head -head as we might imagine. 
Um, they work in different occupations, even immigrants and natives who look the same on paper. So let me talk about each of those things. Start with a change in the way they produce. Other, in other words, their production technology. So the idea of this is that in response to an influx of low-skill workers, firms might develop or uh, adopt production technologies which essentially are more intensive in unskilled labor. Um, and if you think about this, this is going to diminish the, the, these kind of negative wage impacts. In essence, firms find productive uses for more low-skilled workers when there are more wor low-skilled workers available. And that's not as hard as you might think, because we live in a world where, over time, technology is becoming increasing skill demanding. Um, so I look specifically at automation, and the big thing that's going on in, in uh, I'm sorry, I look specifically at manufacturing. And the big thing that's going on in manufacturing is that, over time, firms are automating their production. They are adopting things like industrial robots, which essentially are replacing tasks done previously by low-skill workers. And so in response to immigration, what I've found is that firms simply adopt less of this new expensive machinery and employ people instead. Um, okay, And so in particular, I used the, um, the strategy I just told you about. That is, I compared firms who were located in areas that saw big influxes of low-skill workers due to immigration to firms in areas that did not. And I found that this depressed their adoption of automation technologies and instead gave more job opportunities to low-skill workers. Now, lest you think this is something to do with the kinds of firms that are located in high immigration areas, I had information on uh, what these firms were planning to do in terms of adoption of automation technologies prior to the arrival of the immigrants. And if you ask them what they were planning, I mean, it's not retrospective, actually. They interviewed the firms prior to this, this wave of immigration in the late 80s. And their, their plans look basically the same uh, for adoption of automation technologies prior to the wave of immigration. It's just that when the immigrants came in, they shifted their plans. They shifted down their use of automation technology. All right. So another thing that, that's going on is that maybe immigrants and natives, even the even the ones that look the same on paper to us, that have the same education, the same work experience, they're not really working in the same jobs. They're, they're kind of competing in different labor markets in some sense. Now, if this is the case, and there's some evidence for it, what the, the, the cost of immigration is going to be disproportionately borne by the immigrants themselves. So in other words, if immigrants compete with other immigrants, and less so with natives, what, what immigration is going to do is it's going to push down the wage of other immigrants um, not uh, relative to similarly skilled natives. And you actually see this. So under this link here, you see, so what this is, again, the x-axis is increasing in the amount of immigration. It's in a, a kind of transformed version for theoretical reasons. But basically, to the right is more immigrants. And the y-axis is now the growth in immigrants' wages relative to narrowly defined, similarly skilled natives. And so what this graph is showing you is that places that got more immigration, the wages of immigrants drop relative to similar skilled natives. And that's telling you that immigrants are, are the ones who are disproportionately hit by immigration relative to natives. OK. Uh, so what I found in my own research is this has something to do with the language skills of immigrants. 
Um, so this, this downward sloping relationship, when you, when you break it up into English, immigrants with strong English and immigrants with poor English, it's really driven by those immigrants with poor English. Um, so this is shown here. Um, immigrants who are fluent in English, you do that same graph. You don't really see a downward sloping relationship. And immigrants with, uh, with no English skills, that's where you see that downward sloping relationship. So it's the, when immigration hurts the wage of low English immigrants. Um, and to really drive this uh, point home, I looked at a very special case, which is Puerto Rico. And a lot of people don't know that Puerto Rico gets a lot of immigration, too, um, from Latin America um, uh, in particular. And what the difference with Puerto Rico is everybody speaks Spanish. Both the immigrants and the natives speak Spanish. So if you do the same graph in Puerto Rico, you don't see that downward sloping relationship. Uh, OK. So this is kind of, there's other direct evidence that immigrants and natives do different things. Um, so uh, Madeline mentioned uh, Giovanni Perry's work. Immigrants specialize in jobs which require less communication skills, essentially. So that's sort of consistent with that language story I told you. Um, in addition, there's direct evidence that um, you, uh, that where there's a lot of immigrants, the price of low-skill services, which is essentially these jobs that don't require a lot of communication, are, are lower, are significantly lower. So this is, this is another way of describing the benefits of low-skill immigration. So uh, low-skill services are a lot cheaper in markets where there's a lot of immigration. Okay. Now, there's a variety of other things. Um, that immigration does, and you know, as I said, it's a huge topic. Uh, Madeline talked about the productivity spillovers from high-skill immigration. Um, there's other other potential impacts, uh, but you know, I just want to drive home this idea that we benefit from bringing in low-skill workers. Now, there's, as I said, there's this potential cost that you know maybe we're raising inequality, and that's a big concern in the U.S. So we might want to couple this with transfer policies. It's, it's you know it's a lot like international trade. The kind of the average person benefits, but maybe there's some losers, and maybe you can compensate the losers. But in addition, in the U.S., you don't actually see this much of this this supposed cost side of the thing of uh, the equation. Um, and there's good reasons to think it's small. There's there's uh, there's the the possibility that immigrants and natives work in different kinds of jobs, and that Firms are very adaptable in how they react to low-skill immigration. And uh, finally, uh, Alex asked me to talk about my thoughts on policy. Um, and you know, all the, the heat and the noise seems to be about illegal immigration, right? Um, like, what are we going to do about border enforcement? Um, uh, uh, what are we going to do? Are we going to have an amnesty? I sort of think that's kind of like we're too late when we're having that debate, right? Um, uh, it's like. I think we need to take a step back and say, why are they coming here, um, despite the fact that it's not legal to do so? And the answer is, they have this enormous incentive. They want to come here. They, they have this enormous incentive. They have these big economic gains from coming here. And on top of that, um, we want them to come. You know, we, we benefit from them coming. We demand their labor, which is why they want, essentially why they want to come. So maybe the problem really isn't you know, illegal immigration. It's why don't we have more low-skill visas? Why don't we have more legal ways uh, for immigrants to come? Now, if we, you, know, you may be concerned about other impacts of admitting a lot of low-skill workers. And the, my answer to that is, well, look, they, they have this enormous benefit from coming. So why don't, if you're really worried about the cost of admitting low-skill immigrants, why don't we try to capture some of that with visa fees or other things to to capture some of those benefits for ourselves. 
Um, maybe in an era of budget deficits, that's something we ought to give a thought to. Anyway, thanks for the opportunity to talk here. I appreciate it. Thank you. This is it? Great. Thank you very much for your time. I hope to give you something for it. I, uh, I don't mean to alarm you, but I just met you, and I know roughly how much money you make. <laughs> Almost all of you. And not exactly, of course, but I do have a pretty good idea. And the reason I have a pretty good idea is because of a remarkable calculation that was done at the World Bank recently by uh, Branko Milanovic, economist Branko Milanovic. It's in a great book of his called uh, The Haves and the Have-Nots. So what Milanovic does is assemble for the first time uh, microdata, individual level data, on the real incomes of people all over the world, most countries on Earth, stick them into a single harmonized database, and ask this question. If he takes some random person from that database and he wants to predict their real income, real income, adjusted for prices across, uh, across countries, how far can he get towards a perfect prediction of that person's real income, knowing nothing else about them except what country they live in? One fact only. And the stunning, to me, fact is uh, 60%. He can predict 60% of the interpersonal variance in real living standard based only on where you live and work. So I want to let that sink in for a second, because to me, this is one of the most stunning facts about the economy or the world period. Uh, We're talking about something important, your your real living standard and all that means for your ability to realize your dreams and the health and survival of your children, et cetera, et cetera. And Milanovic's calculation doesn't just suggest that uh, where you live is more important than anything else about you. This number means that where you live is more important than everything else about you combined, whether you're hardworking, lazy, uh, black, white, female, male, your parents were rich, your parents were poor, hot, ugly, everything else about you explains a lot, but not as much as your your country of residence. So that's a a remarkable situation. It's suggesting that there is an enormous uh, inequality of opportunity uh, in the world. Uh, and you can notice it in places like this. Here's the border between the U.S. state of California and the Mexican state of Baja, California. And uh, the minimum wage on one side of that border is 57 cents an hour, and the minimum wage on the other is an order of magnitude higher. Same person doing the same thing. Another way to look at Milanovic's uh, fascinating results is to to think for a second, well, you have the same person doing the same task in two different places. That's an arbitrage opportunity. It's a huge arbitrage opportunity. The same thing is being sold in different markets for hundreds of percent difference, often thousand uh, plus percent difference. Uh, And it's an opportunity to add value. All arbitrage opportunities are an opportunity to create economic value in the world, not take it from someone and give it to somebody else, but generate wealth. And uh, it's very common in the world to have the same person, to to have a person who does a task for $250 a month in one place, 
be able to move, come to Washington, D.C., come to other richer parts of the world, and do exactly hammer the same nail into the same board for 10 times that much. So uh, Alex mentioned this paper called uh, Trillion Dollar Bills on the Sidewalk. And in that, I summarized the uh, scant, there's only about five papers about this, but uh, uh, let's say nascent economic literature on calculating what is the size of this arbitrage opportunity? How much value could be added to the world economy uh, by exploiting this opportunity? And they're all kind of fancy back of the envelope calculations. It amounts to saying, well, how many people are you going to assume can move and what's the gain to each one of them? When you add them up uh, in, uh, in sophisticated ways, you get to really big numbers uh, in the trillions. The global GDP gain to even modest increases in labor mobility rivals and exceeds the, the global economic gain from any other kind of relaxation of international economic barriers you can think of. So what I talk about in the paper is that if you add up economists' best calculations of the global gain from dropping all policy barriers to trade, so total elimination of every tariff on Earth, every quota on Earth, every licensing restriction on Earth, and then add to that the economic gain uh, estimated by Francesco Caselli and others of total elimination of every barrier, policy and otherwise, to the movement of capital. So perfectly allocate capital across the entire globe, eliminate all informational uh, asymmetry, et cetera, et cetera. Add those two together, and you can't get to more than $3 trillion a year in global gain. Compare that to a modest increase in labor mobility, and by modest, I mean take one in 20 of people now residing in what the World Bank defines as developing countries, allow them to work in richer countries, just one in 20 of them, and you get above four trillion conservatively. And larger amounts of mobility would, would result in even larger gains. So really just titanic uh, gains. And I, I want to uh, push back uh, gently on the brilliant presentation by Ethan uh, in that. <laughs> Uh, the, the, this is a gain that is uh, primarily realized instantaneously by migrants, but uh, these kind of population shifts occur over generations. So if you were to say in 1900, uh, okay, 60, uh, 70, 80 million uh, immigrants are coming to the United States and they're going to experience an economic gain over the next 100 years, but that gain would go to the immigrants. Well, now they're us. I mean, they were them then, but they're us now. My grandma came from Brazil in the 1930s, and she was part of that calculation. But I would also be part of that calculation, and now I'm us. So the, 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 these, these movements occur over a time scale where we, we should, uh, we should uh, uh, I'm not sure it's meaningful to, to talk uh, in, in about us and them instantaneously, sure. But this is a gain to the country, because eventually the immigrants become the country. Uh, so what kind of doubts could you have about these numbers? Well, as I said, there aren't a lot of papers uh, uh, about this issue. It's an issue that needs to be studied a lot more. Um, a lot of what I write about in the paper is, is how we could challenge numbers like these. So what are, the, what are people doing in papers like this? Well, it's this very simple calculation of there's a bunch of people at a low uh, income level. The vertical axis here is just income. And what if we moved a certain amount of them to a higher income level and multiply the, uh, the amount of the number of people moving by the income gain? And you can think of four ways that you could critique this that are pretty uh, obvious. You 
might wonder, well, maybe migrants aren't quite as productive as natives at the destination. Uh, something uh, about their, their uh, productivity is less when they arrive. You could say, well, maybe there is a, some kind of bad economic effect uh, and a negative externality on people who don't move at the origin, and that, should, that offsetting uh, cost should be taken into account in a global calculus. Maybe there's a, an offsetting negative economic harm at the destination, uh, which, uh, which the other panelists have uh, talked about. And uh, fourth, you, you might have a non-economic concern about, sure, all of these economic gains, but really how many of those people could feasibly move in any realistic political scenario. So why don't we leave this uh, hypothetical stuff on the table and talk about things that really matter? So I want to take the rest of the time to, to just uh, uh, surf lightly over some of the literature about these different subjects. Um, first, let's talk about uh, the gains to migrants. So uh, you could ask, uh, what is the productivity of a migrant who moves? Or the reverse of the question, if somebody hadn't moved, what would be their economic productivity? If you took one of the many Ethiopian and Eritrean cab drivers in Washington, DC, and somehow teleported them to Addis Ababa, what would be their economic uh, productivity? And how would that differ between, uh, from the average economic differences between Americans and Ethiopians or Eritreans? So in a paper called The Place Premium, my co-authors and I tried to estimate for the first time the gains to immigrating to the United States. And we uh, try to account for as many observable and unobservable differences between migrants and non-migrants as we can. Um, we got uh, microdata from the World Bank uh, from the US and 42 other countries, stacked them all together, and asked the question, well, uh, how about an observably identical person from each of 42 countries in, 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 in that country and the United States? What is their real income? after adjusting for price differences, after adjusting for country of birth, after adjusting for country of education, and age, and education level, and gender. So the question we're asking is, take a Mexican, born in Mexico, educated in Mexico, that is, left after age 20, that's our definition of educated in Mexico, and they're 35 years old, and they have nine years of education, and they're male, uh, and then, make all plausible adjustments based on self-selection on unobservable determinants of income and ask, what do you, what do you end up with as the uh, gap in economic productivity between that person in the United States and that person in Mexico? So here are the results for all 42 countries that we did. Uh, the vertical axis here is the multiple of that person's real income at home that they get in the United States. And the red, orange, and yellow parts are a sensitivity analysis based on the degree of self-selection on unobservable determinants of income, that is the determinants of income that are left after you control for country of birth, country of education, gender, edu uh, education level, and age. And even after all of those adjustments, you're still left with hundreds of percent uh, gains. Um, to uh, another way to look at this is that the, the most of the determinants of poverty in Ethiopia don't come with those cab drivers. To, uh, to turn Shakespeare backwards, uh, the fault, dear Brutus, is not in ourselves, it's in our stars. It's mostly in where we're born. Um, how about the second objection about negative externalities at the origin? I, there's a lot of literature about this, and uh, I just want to uh, 
provoke thought very briefly on this uh, subject by taking a local thought exercise. So here's metropolitan Washington, DC. And uh, there are people in the world who believe that skilled migration from developing countries is so harmful that it should be referred to with a pejorative uh, rhyming phrase, uh, brain drain. And I, I, I don't use that. I just refer to it as the, by the neutral term, skilled migration, because, uh, because for, for the following reason. Let's take a, a low-income part of Washington, DC, say these parts of the city east of the Anacostia River, where uh, incomes are uh, relatively low, and ask the question, what is the economic harm that is done by allowing smart young kids to leave those places? allowing them to live elsewhere, allowing them to work elsewhere. Um, conversely, that, that, that's really exactly the same logical question as asking, well, what would be the economic benefit to those places of not allowing them to leave? That, that is uh, trapping them there, not giving them a decision about whether or not to leave. Let's set aside the many ethical problems that you might have with a policy like that and just say, well, would it be effective? Uh, well. You might wonder with, uh, how much of the uh, deficit in human capital production in those neighborhoods would be remedied by forcing the skilled people who have grown up there to go there. Uh, the same thing happens between countries. The OECD has estimated what, uh, by what fraction Africa's deficit of physicians would be remedied by the hypothetical relocation of all emigre African physicians back to Africa somehow by black helicopters, I don't know. <laughs> and the, the, the answer is about 10% of the deficit as estimated by the World Health Organization would be remedied by even that draconian uh, 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 forcible relocation of every emigrate African doctor on earth back to Africa. That is, the, the reason that doctors are not, being, are not in Africa is primarily due to very complex forces that are not remedied by forcing people to live one place or, the, or another. In this Anacostia example, you might also be concerned about whether not allowing smart young people to leave uh, that geographic area would affect people's education decisions. I mean, isn't some, at least some of the reason why people do stay in school and get uh, an education the fact that they can get high uh, uh, incomes elsewhere? The same thing does happen between countries. In my research and uh, the research of, of others, uh, we've shown that uh, the education decisions, both the extent and the specialties of education decisions of a lot of young people in uh, developing countries are, are shaped by the opportunity to migrate, the option to migrate, even if it's not exercised. Um, the bottom line on this is that, and I, this is going to sound like a strong statement, but I, I, I know this literature so I can say it definitively, that there is no piece of, of uh, evidence in the economic literature that any place on earth was ever developed primarily due to restrictions on movement, um, uh, or that any place on earth was ever made healthier by restrictions on movement of health professionals, or any of the other uh, 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 e the, uh, effects you might imagine from restricting people's movement. I think it makes a lot more sense when we try to contemplate the real effects of a policy like trapping people in a low-income neighborhood. Um, now I want to talk uh, briefly about uh, effects on people at the destination uh, I can cut this pretty short because uh, Madeline and Ethan have done, our world authorities on this and they've done a fantastic job. Um, 
I do want to point out that the, the long-term discussion, I'm alluding again to the long-term, the long-term discussion is not even worth having. Uh, ben Powell and other economists have pointed out that the U.S. got a lot bigger uh, between, say, 1900 and 2005. The U.S. got four times bigger. In 1900, we were a country of 75 million people. By 2005, over 300 million people. Uh, unemployment in those two years happens to have been exactly the same. So somehow all of that labor force entry, uh, a little less than half by immigrants and a lot of other labor force entry, uh, by, uh, uh, especially by women during that time, uh, seems to have generated, in proportionate terms, roughly as many jobs as it, uh, as it took. And really, this is very intuitive when you think that in the long term, uh, immigrants and other labor force entrants are not just uh, uh, suppliers of their own labor. They are consumers of the produce of other people's labor. In the long run, we are all part of an economy. The only reason to even have this discussion or do economic research on it is, uh, is in the short term. And the, the most influential piece of research in this area is uh, by Ethan's uh, dissertation advisor, David Card at Berkeley, who studied this episode uh, in, a, in an influential paper in 1990, the Marielle boat lift. It was a one-off agreement between Carter and uh, Castro that allowed about 125,000 Cuban refugees to leave Cuba from Mariel Bay, that's why they're called the Marielitos, and arrive in Miami. 100,000 of them stayed there permanently. That means in three months, there was this one-off, unexpected, giant 7% jump in the size of the labor force of Miami. David Card looks for effects on anybody else's employment or wages in the months thereafter relative to other cities that did not experience this gigantic uh, sudden uh, uh, inflow and can't find anything, nothing, even for blacks and Hispanics isolated, nothing at all. And I, I think it's fair to say that uh, even uh, 23 years later, it is still a subject of active research. How could that be? Madeline and Ethan have talked a lot about some of those reasons. It might have to do with uh, labor supply. The labor supply of natives was low in areas where these people ended up working. Uh, I, I have a new paper on that uh, subject uh, documenting that the uh, U.S. workers' supply to manual farm work jobs in North Carolina didn't seem to be affected by the Great Recession when unemployment jumped from 4 to 11%. That is, in economic terms, the, the, for some jobs that immigrants are doing, the native labor supply curve seems to be not just almost zero, but, but locally, locally uh, inelastic. Uh, it could have to do with uh, uh, labor demand, that there's, there's something about uh, large inflows of immigrants that stimulate demand. In economic terms, not just driving other workers down the labor demand curve by competing with them, but actually shifting outward the labor demand curve. And Ethan talked about all kinds of mechanisms for this. Uh, firms adjust their technology choices uh, in response to the availability of labor. Uh, Ethan's research has been very influential there. Um, uh, Jenny Hunt, who is at Rutgers and is now the US Department of Labor chief economist, has a fascinating new paper showing that natives adjust their educational choices based on the presence of low-skill migrants uh, Patricia Cortes at Boston University has some very innovative work showing that skilled women's labor force participation choices are influenced by the availability of low-skilled migrants, and you can imagine how that works primarily through the availability of uh, affordable childcare and elder care. All kinds of things that stimulate economic activity and therefore the demand for other people's labor, including natives and including low-skilled natives. Lots of lots of things going on here, as Ethan said. 
the, the mental model of one labor demand curve and is it downward sloping or not, that's the title of Borjas's 2003 paper, uh, is much, much, much simpler than the, than the actual economy. So uh, I want to talk finally about uh, feasibility and then, uh, then I'll finish. Um, and this is where uh, this economist uh, departs completely from economics. People, even people who agree entirely with every word I've just said, often just pat me on the back and say, you know, good luck with that, because uh, <laughs> that's impossible. And I just want to point out that in America, lots of things are impossible until they're possible, and then they're possible. And to, to me, one of the most inspiring documents in all of US history is this letter from Ben Franklin to Congress in February 1790. And uh, you might know that Franklin died in April of 1790. So this is the last public act of his life. He dashed off a letter uh, representing a Quaker association saying, how about if you guys abolish slavery right now in 1790? Not just end the slave trade, but actually make it illegal for human beings to own other human beings today. And you all know that it was generations before that actually happened or was even discussed in Congress again, but it was debated for two days. And there, uh, they didn't keep uh, full transcripts in those days, but there are steno notes of the discussion and they gave all sorts of practical objections to this. You know, who's going to compensate the uh, property owners for all the expropriation? Uh, go back to the Greeks and Romans. Slaves have always been with us, et cetera, et cetera. There's even some hilarious parts where they say, you know, Franklin is getting old and he's a little, you know. <laughs> uh, and they were right at that time. Now they seem crazy. And Franklin turned out to be right. It took a while. But uh, things can change massively. And uh, there's a vast, vast opportunity out there that uh, I think slowly the world is finding ways to, to realize. And uh, uh, it deserves a lot more research. Thanks. Well, thank you very much to all the presenters and their fantastic uh, presentations. Now we're going to begin the Q&A session uh, where you all will get a chance to ask questions. So I want to give you a few reminders. Uh, please wait to be called on. Please wait for the microphone to arrive to you so that everybody in the room can hear you and they can hear you on uh, C-SPAN. Please announce your name and affiliation. And I will say this, uh, Cato is a libertarian think tank, but I will heavily regulate the question and answer section. <laughs> So please ask a relevant question and refrain from making an extended statement, please. So with that, uh, let's have some questions from the audience. Uh, yes, ma'am, right here in the row. Good afternoon. My name is Todd Wiggins. I should stand right there. Okay. Uh, quick question. I didn't see any images of, of military applications for immigrant labor. Did you think about that or take that into consideration given all the ways in which we're spreading out our military across the world now. For me? I, I, I'm, I'm very ignorant of that. I, I've, I've never seen any work on it. I've never done any work on it. I'm, I'm, I'm interested in it, but I don't know. You guys have any comments? No. That's interesting. Yeah. Uh, there's a currently, uh, Representative Kaufman has introduced a bill uh, right now to deal with that issue in terms of a modified DREAM Act. So that's one application of that. Um, but it's a fairly small compared to the entire aspect. Um, other questions? Uh, yes, ma'am, right here. Hi, Mary Chris McGowan. I am a, a TV commentator. What I wanted to ask, and I didn't hear, and I wanted to hear about this, what happens with unemployment in the low-skilled labors, native labors, when 
immigrant laborers come and, and occupy that, those jobs, and what happens as a result of that with income inequality. I will give an example. This uh, person that hires these unskilled la foreign laborers and they pay them $20 per day instead of paying the minimum salary to the natives. So on the one hand, this person is making a lot of money, the person that it's hiring, because he or she is having, or this company, is slavery salaries. And on the other hand, that increases income inequality, and I think we have seen that. And we see the native laborer, the low-skilled labor, that becomes unemployed. And we have seen that, for example, the impact in African-American uh, native people that have an unemployment right now of around 14%. So I didn't hear anything about that. Do you have any comment? Would you guys like to? Uh, sure. Um, uh, so the, uh, I didn't talk about unemployment. I talked about wages. Um, but the, the same research that studied the, uh, the wage impact of immigration has also looked systematically at uh, unemployment impacts. And they, they, they've also looked specifically at these groups that you're talking about, the other minorities in the US, you might think would, uh, might be more harmed by immigration than other groups. And as I pointed out, you can sometimes find effects. And so you know, we ought to be concerned about that. Um, but it's just that these effects, when you look at it systematically, the patterns are that it's not a huge impact. I mean, these are, these are people at the bottom of the economic ladder in some cases, and so you do want to be concerned about it, as I said. But immigration is not responsible for the 14% unemployment rate in the black population. Um, it's, it, at most, it contributed a tiny part of that. Um, so, yeah, I think you, you have concern about it. You do policies to ameliorate it, just like trade adjustment but it is not a major driver of unemployment in uh, minority and disadvantaged populations, as far as we know. Can I address, to address the inequality point, because I think that this is something that, do, that inequality doesn't receive enough public attention, and it's wonderful that President Obama's been talking about it this week. Let's hope that we continue to talk about it as a country. But immigration is not has played a tiny role in the tremendous increase in inequality the United States has experienced since the late 1970s, that most of the inequality has happened at the upper end, that it's this winner-take-all society. And that's really not due to immigration. At the lower end, where you might think that what's going on with the 50-10 wage distribution a research by David Card and John DiNardo has gone through and looked very carefully at this. And they find, and this is perhaps surprising to people, but they find that very little of that increase in inequality at the bottom end is due to immigration. Instead, most of it is due to changing labor market institutions in the U.S., the decline in the real minimum wage, the decline in unionization. But it's not immigration. That's good enough. Okay. Next question, please. Uh, the gentleman right here in the middle. Thank you. Uh, Doug Brooks, I'm with the Afghan American Chamber of Commerce. Um, my question would be looking at some, we talked about the mural or the boat lift from, from Cuba. Uh, has there been any studies uh, related to um, other groups, say the Vietnamese, the Iranians, um, or now the Afghans or, or, Irani or Iraqis who have been coming to the United States? Have there been any isolated studies of them and, and their impacts on uh, the places that they've ended up? Um, I'd be interested. No, off the top of my head, but yeah. The, the only studies that I'm aware of for the United States are one looking at the um, 
entry of Russian scientists and engineers with the fall of the Soviet Union, particularly when the Soviet Union allowed Jews to leave and come to the United States. And this is by George Borjas, and it's looking at mathematicians. It's together with Kirk. Doran of Notre Dame. And what they find is that it looks like that the Russian mathematicians didn't play well with the US-born mathematicians, that they didn't speak the same language mathematically. And so there weren't huge synergies uh, that happened as a result. There's also some research uh, that goes back and looks at when the Nazis came to power and lots of Jews left Europe and came to the United States, and that the benefits that the US received as a result of that. But these other groups, which would be very interesting to look at, I don't believe any one has systematically. Can I just mention, so uh, David Card's work has been incredibly seminal. There have been, uh, just, there's just a stack of papers looking at every mass movement that has occurred. There, we're almost running out of them as economists to study them. Uh, so there's a paper about the return of uh, uh, French who were living in Algeria at the time of Algerian independence, a bunch of uh, huge numbers of Portuguese people returning uh, to uh, to Europe when Mozambique and Angola became independent, uh, uh, Russians coming to Israel at the time of the fall of the Soviet Union, um, Polish uh, 600,000 Polish people arriving in the UK at the time that EU movement was liberalized again and again and again. All of these find almost no net effects. They, they, you, you can, if you control for the other effects that, uh, that uh, these guys have been talking about, the fact that the, the, the labor demand curve is uh, shifting right and left, that is the, the, the overall uh, demand for, uh, for everybody's labor is being, is being stimulated by the arrival of migrants, then you do find that there is some competition. Uh, uh, there is competition in all labor markets. David Autar has a fascinating paper about the entry of women into the US labor market after World War II, showing that they were competing to some degree with men, and there is a somewhat downward sloping labor supply curve. Leah Bustan at UCLA has studied the movement of blacks out of the South into northern US cities and shown that there is a, a, a slightly downward sloping labor, supply, uh, labor demand curve. Uh, uh, again, all of these things are abstracting away from the fact that this curve also shifts. <laughs> uh, and that, that's why nobody has been able to find in any of these uh, 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 studies uh, of all kinds of flows of people in, uh, from all kinds of origins into all kinds of destinations, uh, any of these effects. And the, the, uh, Alex just mentioned now the most extreme one I know of that I don't think has ever been studied in detail is the uh, liberalization of movement of people in South Africa that occurred in the early 1990s. And r really, this is an international situation in that large uh, amounts of South Africa were not officially recognized as being part of South Africa. You know, the US never recognized Botswana and Siskai as being separate countries, but the RSA called them that. And they had many of the attributes, including judiciary and stamps and, uh, and military. And then one day, they suddenly said, actually, that, that population, which is six times larger than the population of the white areas, and about a seventh as, as wealthy and very culturally, ethnically uh, different, can just move freely without the country. And there's no longer any restriction on what jobs they can take at what time of day in the white areas. And now it's 20 years later. I remember when I was a kid when that happened. We run the experiment. What happened to the wages and, and, and employment of all those white people? Well, it, it, it improved. 
And, and there are numerous studies. There's one I know of from the University of Cape Town that, that, that tracks across the income distribution what happened to, uh, to the employment conditions and, and wages of, of white people, even with this titanic movement of hundreds of percent of the population and at a vastly different skill level, they ended up complementing workers in white areas and not substituting for them at all. That, that's how, that's how, what I want to convey here is the, is the, is the consensus, the, the, the uniformity of decades of economic findings on these issues. I'll, I'll add one small thing to that, which is that um, you might be surprised to learn that there's research that shows that Americans value uh, ethnic diversity. Uh, so places that um, people are pay willing to pay more to live in places that are more ethnically diverse. And uh, uh, people have studied the impact of immigration on this and, and it, it, it tends to drive up people's willingness to live in an area when there's more ethnic diversity. I mean, most trivially you see that um, uh, like, uh, People, it's very hard to have ethnic diversity in restaurants if you don't have ethnic diversity in your population, right? As someone from New Hampshire, rural New Hampshire knows, <laughs> uh, it's hard to ha get those benefits without the, the immigrants. Um. <laughs> I'll, uh, this uh, gentleman right here. Uh, hi, uh, Daniel Keene from American University. Uh, I would think that the trillion dollar bill on the sidewalk argument would provide a justification for eliminating education and skill level based restrictions on work visas and just letting anybody, anybody come on a work visa that uh, would be interested in that. So I was wondering about your thoughts on that as a policy option and I suppose also Madeline's thoughts on that. Do you mind if I start? So. Uh, People often ask me if I'm in favor of open borders, and uh, I, I told Russ Roberts recently that I am agnostic on open borders, and that, that's a very strange word, but it refers to people who, who, who uh, when asked if they believe in God, uh, think the question is ill-posed. They, they ask, well, what do you mean by God? And what I always ask is, well, what do you mean by open borders? That, that anybody can just take any job uh, uh, in any place they want uh, without any regulation? Well, you know, uh, that's not true for me. Uh, I can't go practice as a physician. Uh, I can't go practice as a lawyer whenever I feel like it. Uh, there, there, there are all kinds of regulations on, uh, there's certainly spatial regulations on where I can go. Uh, Alex could have me thrown out of here by the police if he felt like it. And uh, I can't. You don't just have walk to worry about that. Well, we'll see about that. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so yes, yes. So so I, I I'm I'm I, I'm uh, talking a lot, but the uh, we don't have a situation right now where movement or the taking of jobs is completely unregulated. So I I I would need to see evidence that a total deregulation of uh, of, of all movement by uh, by migrants or the, their occupational choices. And by total deregulation, I mean I mean anarcho-capitalism. Absolutely, uh, no regulation on, on on any of their choices at all. I would need to see evidence about that because I don't know what the evidence for that would be domestically. Like I I I think that regulations that uh, make sure that the quality of foreign physicians is observable makes sense. Uh, I'm not sure if repeating their entire residency, which is what most foreign physicians have to do right now, even if you're a 55-year-old uh, cardiac surgeon from Nigeria, and, uh, with, with limited exceptions, you have to become a resident again and walk around uh, making coffee for the attending physician. Uh, I think that's a little extreme, but should there be no regulation on them at all? Well, I mean, if I were going to be on the surgery table, probably I would want some regulation to make sure that person's quality is observable and, 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 and good enough. 
So I, I'm not sure about no regulation, but, but uh, what we could argue about is the level of regulation that is right. I would argue that we want markets to regulate to the greatest extent possible. I think Michael makes some very good points about occupational licensing, where there are good reasons in some occupations, maybe not hairdressing, say, uh, to have licenses. But, uh, you know, it's very difficult for regulators to determine how many people should enter and in what occupation. And when you look at some of the details of the bill that was passed by the Senate, it does set up you know, this huge bureaucratic commission that's going to determine very precisely how many points people get for certain occupations and try to measure wages at an incredibly detailed level, much more detailed than we actually have data for right now. And it would be wonderful to get much better data on labor markets, but I'm very leery of, of whether it's going to happen. And so what I think we should do, uh, and it's, you know, Ethan's final point, is that we should you know, sell off more visas. I think we should auction them off and allow markets to determine more of who enters uh, and certainly have lots more visas than we have now. Okay, next question. Can, can I just make a quick plug for Madeline's book? The, this book that was mentioned earlier, Beside the Golden Door, is, is uh, I, I can't think of a more sensible uh, proposal on immigration reform. The current immigration reform efforts don't look much like it, but they do incorporate some aspects of it, and it's really worth a look. Thank you. Uh, yes, uh, uh, lady right here in the back. My name is Agnes Powell. I'm a private citizen. I have two questions. During the 80s, when our immigrant population increased, that coincided with our prison population increasing. Is that coincidental or was that in any way connected? And the second question is, if we are seen as a donor, as a, as a recipient country receiving immigrants, has any donor country like India that sends us highly skilled immigrants, or the Philippines, which sends mid-level skills like nurses, or Mexico, which sends low-level but highly motivated immigrants, um, have they looked at what they're doing wrong to try to change and fix to keep their citizens to make their countries more opportunity rich? Do you guys know the crime literature? I mean, I know. I know a little bit about it. Yeah, I mean, I. My understanding of the findings on immigration and crime are that uh, uh, basically, if anything, immigration reduces crime rates. I know, I know that people find that very hard to believe, but um, uh, immigrants tend to be very low, have very low crime propensities, and, and markets that get a lot of immigration um, tend to see crime go down. Um, there is some work on the, the rise in uh, prison population, and um, I, don't, I don't know that it... I don't, I, as far as I know, that there's no causal association between those two. Um, maybe somebody can comment on your second question. So, uh, so um, uh, it, it's it's a very complex question. So let, let's let's talk about uh, nurses in the Philippines. Uh, nurse, Philippines is the number one sending country of nurses to the U.S. Fifty-four uh, percent of all foreign-born nurses in the whole United States are just from Philippines. And uh, the Philippines has, uh, I don't want to say too many because I don't know what the right number of nurses is. The Philippines has way more nurses per person than uh, almost any other country on earth and certainly any country in its income group. So I, 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 I saw this number cited. I wanted to know if it was really true. So I went into the microdata of the Philippine census and counted how many practicing registered nurses there were in the Philippines. 
and it's more per capita in the Philippines than the UK. The Philippines is a pretty poor country. It's, a, it's like Peru uh, in, in economic development, and they have huge numbers of nurses. One of the reasons for that is that uh, there is a, a, a well-developed private and public sector machinery for helping Philippine nurses migrate. They work in Singapore, they work in Saudi Arabia, they work here, they work in Canada, they work in Israel, they work uh, everywhere. And uh, one of the reasons that lots of, of uh, Filipinos, uh, mostly women, become nurses is because of this opportunity to migrate, even if they never uh, exercise it. So uh, there are large numbers of unemployed nurses in the Philippines right now. The Philippines' uh, problem is not to keep nurses at home, but to generate jobs for nurses, including overseas. And that's a lot of what the Philippine Overseas Employment Agency does. There are other countries that are in a completely different situation, like uh, uh, Jamaica is interested in attracting more of its uh, nurses to stay rather than emigrate. And uh, there are e e experiments in how to do that. Uh, paying them two or three times as much is something that's not in the uh, realm of possibility for more countries. But there are lots of other things that uh, ministers of health have experimented with, like uh, uh, task shifting, letting people who have, uh, say, a nursing degree do more of the things that doctors do, say, prescribe medicine or practice independently. Uh, uh, have more choice in where they work. Uh, a lot of developing country health systems just assign you to some rural area where there's no good school for your kids and say, look, that's where you're going to work for the next five years, good luck. And allowing people more choice about what they, where they live tends to make people more willing to stay at home and not just seek opportunity elsewhere. Uh, but it, it's a, it, it's a, it, 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 is, it is different by country and, and even over time. And, and, and I think a very interesting area. I can uh, answer just a little bit about the crime data. I spent a decent amount of time working on that. Um, even, it's, it's sort of something that's been said about immigrants for generations is that they're more likely to commit crimes. It's sort of a notion out there, a stereotype. But what we see going back in time, even to the late 19th and early 20th century, uh, that's really never been the case. Uh, immigrants have always been less likely, as far as we can tell, to commit crimes. Uh, on average, than uh, native-born Americans. Even in the early 20th century, the, so the Dillingham Commission, which was a commission set up by the government to study the differences, uh, the impact of immigration in the United States, they came to negative conclusions about immigrants in every single category. They claimed that they were racially inferior, genetically inferior, predisposed to lowering American wages, basically every single negative thing that you can think of, they found or manipulated data to support the idea that immigrants were bad for the U.S., except for crime, and they admit <laughs> that even in the area of crime, all the, and they, there's a hilarious segment where they say, it might seem otherwise, and your daily you know, experience might confirm otherwise, but immigrants are, even back then in the days of the mafia, being a big deal, less likely to commit crimes than uh, native-born Americans. And uh, what you see today is a lot of uh, immigrant cities in the United States, heavily immigrant cities with the exception of Miami, being the outlier like it is in so many different ways on so many other things, uh, is basically the exception that proves the rule is that basically cities with large immigrant populations have generally a low, lower crime rate. And what we see, at least over time series, is that immigrants choose places that are a bit more peaceful. And then once they go in there, the crime rate seems to drop even more once they settle. So that seems to be the vast share of what the evidence shows. Uh, next question. Uh, gentleman in the yellow over here. Thank you. Uh, Pat Spann, just uh, myself. 
Uh, I wonder if each of the panelists, uh, this is, this is, I've been to several things here on immigration, and I wonder if each of the panelists could mind stating what is, what is your view of the um, concept of the nation state, of the nation state and sovereignty? I, uh, um, Mr. Clemens uh, hit on it a little bit, but I'm very curious about, uh, um, you know, what is your actual view of the uh, nation state. Thank you. Do you guys want to address that? I mean, that doesn't have much to do with your research. You don't have I, to. Oh, so I'd like to. My husband's a philosopher, and if he's watching, <laughs> yes. hey. Um, but uh, so I hear some at home about cosmopolitanism, which is you know this view about do you that you just think about the welfare of your own citizens, right, or people within your own country, and I think we all, most of us tend to succumb to that. And one of the things I really appreciate about Michael's work is that it does think globally, and Lant Pritchett's does as well. And so I'm not a philosopher or a political scientist to even know what a nation state quite is um, as an economist. But I think it, that immigration really is best viewed from a global perspective instead of from within your own country and the gains to you know, US natives or the cost to US natives. And when you think about it globally, you get different answers sometimes. And those answers are unambiguously in favor of greater immigration. Yeah, I, I, the only thing I'll add to that is, um, I sure wish there was a way we could, you know, there's, there's, there's so much um, gains to be had, as Michael talked about, from uh, allowing more people to immigrate to the U.S. and to other developed countries. I wish there was a way to coordinate that better, like because there's gains for them, and there's kind of some opportunities for bargaining on that. I mean, so I mean, obviously the kind of governments are an impediment to that, but I I, I don't want to make any more general statement about my views on the existence of governments. Um, <laughs> <laughs> You're not an anarchist. Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> Can I just say, I just want to separate questions of whether, whether institutions should exist from whether they should be open. Uh, I mean, uh, when this country was founded, huge parts of the population weren't citizens. Uh, so women couldn't vote, lacked basic citizenship rights. So most of the African-American population was not citizen. Uh, you could look at that and say, well, abolish citizenship. Or you could look at that and say, maybe citizenship is an institution that should be more open to people entering it and leaving it. Uh, two, two, uh, two very, very different solutions. So when I look at the world and I see Branko Milanovic's calculation of how much your place of birth matters, uh, uh, one uh, one response to that, which I wouldn't share, is okay. Let's abolish uh, states and governments and and pretend like they don't serve a function. Uh, another one would be to say, what are ways that the the institutions uh, involved in the nation state could become more open to people changing the nation state that they're affiliated with? Uh, I I. Uh, I'm often told by people that, uh, hey, look, you are in favor of some sort of global veil of ignorance. Uh, and, and if you actually read John Rawls, he, he will tell you that nation states are the basic unit of analysis with when, within which there are there is a veil of ignorance. And, and nation states are where ethics are defined and some sort of social bargain and outside of it, so ethics don't mean anything. 
I, I, I disagree really strongly with that. I, I think, uh, I mean, the fact that the Republic of South Africa declared that Bapatatswana was not part of the Republic of South Africa, in that, by that logic, would mean, okay, well, we can't say that that act was ethical or unethical because that's a separate country. Well, what's a country or what isn't a country, apparently, is something that people decide every day. And in the early 90s, South Africa made a different decision about who was and wasn't in the in-group and part of the ethical calculus. Uh, so I, I, I don't accept that, that, uh, that ethics can't be defined across borders, uh, but, but I, I, I'm also hesitant to declare that governments serve no function and nation states serve no function. I think the evidence is very strong that a greater uh, openness of the institutions of the nation state could be beneficial for everybody. Thank you. Following. Uh, next question. Uh, this gentleman right here. Hi, I kind of had a two-part question. Um, the first part being... Um, Can you please uh, speak up and hold it a little closer? Thank you. Uh, I had a two-part question. Uh, the, the first part being, uh, Ms. Vodney talked a little bit about um, kind of what the uh, the fiscal burden a little bit of immigration and uh, kind of with the different groups, kind of what their fiscal burden is. You know, the concern for many Americans is, you know, half Americans don't pay taxes. You know, they're concerned that, um, you know, the immigrants coming in are going to fall into that group that doesn't pay as opposed to a group that does uh, pay. So I was just wondering if there's any research about, you know, immigration and, you know, if they come in kind of on the lower end, you know, do they end up, you know, uh, moving moving up? Um, and the second part is, um, you know, the uh, panelists were talking about how uh, high-skill immigration, you know, would be a big benefit and also talking about low-skill immigration would be a big benefit. Um, you know, is there some sort of relationship kind of um, – maybe not quota, but kind of percentage that's optimal for our country of, you know, you know, say, you know, 10% of immigrants coming in should be high scale or, you know, 80% uh, should be low scale, that kind of thing. Is there been research done on what would be kind of an optimal uh, infusion for our country? So I'll tackle the first part uh, because that's easier, <laughs> I think. So much like low-skilled or less educated natives, less educated immigrants receive more in government benefits than they pay in taxes, right? So in your terms, this would be a fiscal burden. Again, it's true of both natives and immigrants. And what that means to me is that it's a problem. If you view it as that as a problem, it is a problem with the tax structure, not with immigration per se. And so I would think that what you would want to change would be the way your tax structure or your transfer programs are designed, that that is where I think the changes should occur first. Uh, the second thing, um, part of that question, is that wages do increase for the average immigrant over time that they assimilate, and so that their tax payments would increase over time. Now, for immigrants who have not graduated high school, which is the predominant group, uh, the plurality of immigrants, right now, over their own lifetimes, they are a net fiscal cost. Once you get to higher education levels, high school and higher, immigrants are a net fiscal contributor. This is from the National Research Council report in 1996, which is the best evidence, although it's now very old, certainly. Uh, but when you look at the descendants of immigrants, and Michael talked about this, how immigrants become us, they become the country, that when you look at the descendants of immigrants, which all of us really are, that over time they do pay back, if you will, their, if their if their immigrating ancestor was low education, they pay that back. So it depends in part on what your time horizon is, what you think about the fiscal cost of immigrants. 
Yeah, that was all. That was a very good answer. Um, the in terms of so I'll just add the optimal immigration policy. All we have is that uh, that model that I talked about, that very simple model, uh, which says that you ought to admit immigrants whose skills are rare in the existing population. Um, but as I said, there's a lot of problems with that model, um, and it's not clear. And furthermore, I have some doubts about our ability to fine tune exactly who we get. Um, so that's that's another issue. Um, I mean. Uh, you know, if you look back at the various major policy shifts, the the kind of the actual the immigrants we actually got compared to what we said we wanted uh, differs wildly. Um, so, um, and so maybe we ought to think more about uh, what kind of policy we want to have for other reasons as well, um, not just this kind of optimal kind of calculation. Um, yeah. Okay. Just two brief things. I, I'm I, I, sorry. I, I don't. Uh, I'm not a specialist in the study of immigrant assimilation, but I know one fascinating fact that I looked up in the 1940 census, which is now online. You can get the whole thing with names. Uh, a fraction of white foreign-born in 1940 with a high school degree is 12 percent. 12 percent, and now uh, over 50 percent of the unauthorized population of the U.S., has, uh, adult population, has a high school degree. Uh, remarkable. So uh, there, there might be some level of, of immigration at which uh, assimilation doesn't happen. Kids are just uh, incredibly poor and uneducated. But it, whatever that is, it's just, it would have to be vastly greater than what we saw in the late 20th century. Uh, on, uh, on the right level of immigration, uh, Ethan talked about proposals for uh, uh, more market-driven uh, mechanisms for regulating immigration. Gary Becker, Nobel laureate, has talked about this. Uh, uh, Richard Freeman, uh, top labor economist at Harvard, has uh, a Journal of Economic Perspectives article talking about this. Uh, uh, economists have been talking about these mechanisms for a long time. Part of, that's one of the reasons why I like Madeline's book is that it talks about market mechanisms for regulating precisely because uh, you know, go around Washington and ask, what's the optimal size of the U.S. labor force and the optimal composition of it? Well, does anybody know the op optimal composition of the U.S. manufacturing sector or the optimal allocation of capital in Wall Street? No human being knows that. No human being could possibly calculate that. And any, any calculation that we come up with, even with the smartest people in the world sitting down together, is going to be imperfect and maybe wildly flawed. Uh, and uh, uh, mechanisms for gathering information from the real world about what the right mix of the labor force is, which is exactly what these market mechanisms are, uh, might be something that the world could explore. Thank you. And we have time for one more question. Um, I think uh, this gentleman right here in the front row. Thank you very much for these uh, fascinating presentations. My name is uh, Arend Kowner. I'm ex-International Monetary Fund and consultant on Africa. Uh, my question, uh, the, the emphasis has a lot been on the benefits for the receiving country, in particular the U.S. Uh, the standard model uh, says that uh, the, uh, the school group that receives the immigrants sees the wages go down, the other groups see the wages go up, and all, everybody uh, as a total will gain. I suppose that capital, the, the, the remuneration for capital is assumed to be the same. Now, on the sending country, I suppose that the standard model says that the reverse is true. So this, uh, although Michael has alluded to global benefits, I, I guess that the model says that the sending country loses. Now, what is your view on that? And also, is there then a case for policy intervention uh, through transfers between governments? Thank you. 
Go, I just spoke, so go ahead, if you'd like. Sure. Um, uh, I, uh, yeah, you know, the, the research on, you know, the, I, I don't know the research on brain drain that well, um, uh, but the, the, yeah, so there's mirror, there's kind of mirror image uh, labor, uh, labor supply impacts in the, uh, the receiving countries. I mean, uh, sending countries. The, the sending countries, um, the, the people they tend to send, um, well, it varies by country, um, ten- they tend to send high-skill, they're, they're high-skill workers. Um, and, uh, you know, the, in, you know I, I'm not sure you should call this a cost for them either. I mean, so this is, uh, these the sending countries tend to have high inequality, and um, uh, so this, this would tend to push down inequality in these sending countries. Um, if the model is right, and if the model is not right, they'll adjust in other ways. Um, I don't know if anybody else has any other thoughts. I uh, I have I have never seen any evidence in the literature that the that the limitation on the on the physical movement of skilled workers per se has caused any uh, beneficial effect in anywhere. So empirically, theoretically, we can imagine reasons why that might be. Uh, uh, empirically, the 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 possibility of figuring out who would have been a good leader and uh, forcing them to stay in Ethiopia, who would have been entrepreneurial and forcing them to stay in Liberia, much less creating the conditions for that person to be an effective uh, leader or be an effective entrepreneur. Uh, are, 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 are in, I've never seen any evidence that that has successfully been done. Uh, there, there are many countries that have made the transition from huge outflows of skilled labor to inflows of skilled labor. Taiwan is a notable example in the late, uh, and Korea more recently in the late 20th century went, becoming, went from uh, uh, losing huge numbers of skilled people to uh, attracting them back on net. But that was, in every case I'm aware of, because of much broader changes that occurred in the economy and not because of their movement per se. So as the, the movement as a driver of the change, I've never seen a, a, any evidence on. Great. Uh, thank you very much. And please give a warm round of applause to our presenters. <laughs>